Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Today's episode is with journalist Ranaf Ruhar about her new book, Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. This has been one of my favorite themes post-COVID. We've had some good episodes about this topic with Christopher Mims of the Wall Street Journal, Peter Zion on the foreign policy angle, and I've got a good one coming up about the manufacturing side of things as folks look at how the focus on supply chains and resiliency is going to define the present moment. Hope you check out her book. It's available in our bookshop. And of course, if you enjoy any of these episodes, we'd love for you to go to our Supercast where you could fund and help us monetize the show, realignment.supercast.com. Hope you all enjoy this conversation. Rana Furuhar, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad to speak with you. Um, I actually bought Makers and Takers a few weeks, a few years ago rather. Um, I unfortunately didn't actually read it. just has a good title. It looks good on the bookshelf. But I was excited to actually <laughs> read your latest book. I'm going to do everything in reverse. Let's just start really simply by getting a description from you of what the current economic moment is. So we are at what I think is going to be a once in a lifetime pendulum shift in not just the US economy, but the global economy away from what I would say has been a half century of neoliberal globalization. And what I mean by that is the idea that money, goods and people were going to travel freely across borders and that they were always going to land where it was best and most productive for them to do so. Right. So um, this is an idea that is it's often associated with the Reagan revolution, Reagan Thatcher revolution, the sort of unleashing of animal spirits. Um, it's also associated sometimes with the trade policies of the Clinton administration. The idea actually goes back much further. It goes back even to the 1930s um, when you had the original neoliberals, you know, the guys from the Mont Pelerin Society um, that were coming out of Europe. And interestingly, it was a kind of a moment similar to our own where there was a lot of global turmoil, you know, that they were in between two great wars. People wanted to figure out how to tampen down nationalism and fascism. And the way that they came up with was to connect global capital and global business together. And so that's that's sort of how neoliberalism was born. It's ironic to me, though, that when you fast forward and particularly throughout the 90s um, into the noughties, um, post great financial crisis, pandemic war in Ukraine, the pendulum has shifted so far that while there's been a tremendous amount of wealth created at a global level, there's been huge inequalities created in countries, not just in the US, in fact, but in many countries. And so you, you get this sort of perverse situation where a paradigm that was meant to connect countries actually ends up kind of lifting up nationalism, populism, fractionalism, and, and even fascism, you know, in the form of the, the Trump, you know, MAGA type type political movement. Um, so we're ready for a change. Um, you know, we need a better balance between local and global. And that's what this book is about. So here's a question. You said something really interesting. You said neoliberal globalization. As I'm thinking about the way that the globalization story was told to me, 
in the 2000s, like when I was in high school, I would think of it through the lens of, let's say, Thomas Friedman. And Thomas Friedman in The World is Flat would talk about how globalization is simply communication, technology. The world is flatter. There's something that at a baseline level is just obviously true about that and isn't inherently ideological. There is going to be an internet, and that means that you're going to be able to speak with someone in the Punjab in a way that you couldn't, let's say, in the 1950s. So where would you separate this natural process of globalization from the specific neoliberal policy political decisions that were made? It's a great question. So um, let me just start by saying, I think the world was never quite as flat as we thought it was. Um, For starters, there are different flows of goods, there are flows of people, and there are flows of information via the internet. Um, All of those things are happening to a certain extent, but if you look actually in the last few years, flows of goods have really flattened out, so you're getting a lot more done locally. Flows of capital have regionalized and even localized as well. That's particularly happening between the U.S. and China now. Now, digital trade, um, uh, trade in ideas is still flowing, but ultimately you're going to get some separation of that as well, and that's because um, if you think about how the world is moving, I think it's going to become much more bipolar or even tripolar as China, which is a surveillance state. There's no assumption of privacy for citizens. And the U.S. and Europe make somewhat different decisions about how they want data to be protected, how they want um, uh, capitalism in the age of surveillance, let's say, um, to, to quote Shoshana Zuboff, to work. And so there will be some balkanization there. Um, that said, globalization is not going away entirely. And what I'm talking about is the idea of how do we make sure that everyone is benefiting from globalization? And so let, let me give you, if I may, just an anecdote from the book that I think really encapsulates this. Um, I had a conversation before he passed away um, over a year ago with the late labor leader, Richard Trumpka, who was for many years the president of the AFL-CIO. And I asked him, I said, you know, when the trade deals of the 90s um, and the uh, like NAFTA, which was um, set in in, in 1993 and China into the WTO in 2001, when those deals were being discussed, what was the conversation amongst policymakers with labor? What were you told? And he said, well, you know, I remember someone from the Clinton administration coming to me and saying, you know, we know this is going to be tough for you guys. It's going to flatten labor wages in the U.S., but eventually they're going to rise. And he said, okay, but how long is that going to take? And the policymaker said, totally straight, three to five generations. That's a century for the communities and the people in question. And those decisions were being taken by both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, who decided that it was okay to have a country in which um, coastal knowledge work was being incentivized and privileged, and it was okay for us to essentially outsource um, or downsize large swaths of the industrial supply chain. I think the events of the last few years have proven that that was not a good idea. But personally, as someone who grew up in a manufacturing family, I never thought it was a good idea. You know, I, I, I think that you need a more balanced economy. Um, you know, other developed countries, Germany, Japan, Italy, have kept much higher levels of manufacturing in their economy as a way to diversify and more wealth and place. And so I think that that's something we're coming back to. Yeah, I like the way you set that up because something I've always wondered is to what degree, let's put aside 
the pain, the callousness, the obvious fact that the whole, don't worry, there'll be trade adjustment assistant and all those other things, part of the conversation didn't happen to the degree which it had to happen. Yeah. At the same time though, to be devil's advocate, I always think back, what really could Great Britain have done in the late 19th century to ensure that it was going to always be the manufacturing capital of the world? There was basically, from my understanding, it was going to disperse. So what would you say would be the difference between Great Great Britain towards the end of the second industrial revolution and then the US in the 1990s? Like what still was retainable? So I love this question because it allows me to bring up David Ricardo, (laughs) one of the one of the key economic figures here. You know, he was a a British political philosopher and Ricardian economics is something that is the basis of what people call free trade. I would argue that free trade has never really been fully free or certainly fair trade. Um, But Ricardo, uh, you know, was the guy who said, look, Better for the Portuguese to make wine, better for the British to make cloth. It's okay for countries to have comparative advantage and specialize in different things. Ricardo had never seen a giant shipping container that could take, um, you know, products of an entire industry across the world in a matter of days. He did not have the internet. He had no sense that industries were going to send their entire supply chains abroad. And in fact, it's interesting, in one of his um, important works, he actually posited that this was not going to be a problem because he said that um, certainly the capitalists of any given nation would want to keep things local and take a somewhat uh, lesser profit margin in order to do that because of patriotism. Well, you know, clearly he'd never been to the World Economic Forum or, you know, seen a private equity firm (laughs) in global private equity firm uh, at work. But let me get to the second part of your question, which I think gets at something important, which is how do smaller countries survive in this world and how do bigger countries survive? And that's an interesting question. I think that regions like the US, Europe as a whole, potentially with North Africa, China, Asia, regions can actually regionalize quite well. They've got food, uh, fuel, and consumer demand. Um, Although Europe is finding that getting your fuel from autocrats is possibly not a good idea. So, um, uh, you know, these, these regions can do okay. Small countries, unless they have connections to a larger region or are part of, say, friendshoring, you know, something in which they can tie into a larger block, are going to have trouble doing everything locally, and they shouldn't have to do everything locally. But, you know, it's interesting. I'm already seeing some real wins in this new world in unexpected places. You can look at Africa, for example, and look at how as we get into a more multipolar world, a lot of African nations are creating more regional alliances and saying, you know, look, we've got interesting um, technological innovations in part because they leapt frog in some ways ahead of of other countries because they'd never have the old line infrastructure. So, you know, you've got a lot of interesting mobile um, technology, you've got natural resources, you've got human capital coming back from abroad. And so there are interesting regional alliances going on there. Europe potentially could be an alliance. Certainly, um, the U.S., Canada, and parts of South America are going to be an alliance. You just heard, actually, last week, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, Christia Freeland, kind of laying out this new world quite eloquently and saying trade has to be based, at least in part, on values, not just on lowering prices. 
you know, it's interesting uh, hearing what you're talking about in terms of these regional blocks and alliances. This seems to be a real repudiation of that very like 2014, 2015, 2016 skepticism of the EU, skepticism of, let's say, NAFTA. Like, obviously, uh, I'm sure that you would find all sorts of flaws within the NAFTA system. But if you're talking yeah. about regionalism, if you're talking yeah. about friendshoring, if we're the U.S. getting into a competition with China, we obviously are fine from a geopolitical perspective, importing goods from Mexico instead of China. So can you really talk about the shift that we're seeing and how we now are thinking of regional blocks as maybe not just these like Fukuyamaite um, yeah, yeah, end of yeah, history thing, but yeah. really this very realistic and deeply important thing. That's, that's what I'm just re reflecting upon as you articulate Yeah, yeah, this. totally, totally. No, it, it's a, it's a, a let me give you two examples. It's an, it's an important question. Um, so, when I think of regional blocks and how they could work to be a win-win, I think about innovation, I think about labor, and I think about climate. So let's just take Canada, the US, and Mexico for an example. Um, a lot of intellectual property around clean technology, lithium batteries, for example, is held in both the US and Canada. There is a move for those countries to work together in the race to come up with green batteries, which are crucial to, to shifting us into a more sustainable energy future. Um, one can imagine a kind of an industrial policy, industrial strategy across borders that incorporates all that IP, helps smaller and mid-sized companies to work together, ensures that you don't get two or three giants just eating everybody's lunch. Um, and then utilizes the manufacturing capacity and labor that's available in the U.S., but also in Mexico and other Latin American countries to make that a reality. That's an innovation hub, and that's about keeping the consumption and production closer together, not just because you can iterate faster and come up with good ideas, but because you're reducing emissions costs of transporting things, you know, from far away, which is a trend that was already in train even before the pandemic or um, the war in Ukraine. Um, you can um, reduce energy costs. You can basically start to create redundancy rather than having, say, 92% of high-end semiconductors located in Taiwan, which was never a good idea for anybody. You know, it's not a good idea for the U.S., for China, for Europe. Let's start to create these regional hubs. Um, my friend Barry Lynn at the Open Markets Institute has actually come up with sort of a clever idea that he calls the rule of four, where when it comes to important new technology, strategic things that, that everybody needs, you should have four geographies where they're made. You should have four companies that are involved in the production. Let's make sure that we have um, an ecosystem that's being enriched, not just a winner take all, be it from a country or a company. Something I'm wondering about, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You referred to this moment where this post-neoliberal economic paradigm could come about as like this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You've obviously written a lot about Wall Street and financialization. Why wasn't 2008 that <laughs> moment? Because yeah. speak again about, you know, I used to, you know, subscribe to like Time Magazine and Newsweek back in high school. And yeah. I just remember cover after cover. Yeah, I think in good faith proclaiming, okay, this is the 1932 moment. We have this illustration how the status quo wasn't working. How do you think through this is almost kind of a political question. Yeah. What determines whether a moment or an opportunity is actually fulfilled or not? 
so interesting. I'm wondering, probably one of the covers you saw in time was my cover on the end of, I actually wrote a cover in, I think it was, um, gosh, what was it? 20, 2010, maybe 2011 on the crisis in capitalism. And I was, then that was the precursor to my book, Makers and Takers. I was amazed as you, as you are that, wait a minute, you know, we have just had the flaws and fragilities in our global system exposed so radically. Why are we not taking more action? And the answer is, A, we didn't get the right narrative. Yeah, we got a narrative that, okay, poor people took too many loans and we need to bail out these banks. And a lot of technocrats came in and used their gobbledygook, you know, and listen, I don't want to denigrate experts, but there is a lot in, in academia and in policy circles. And I know this after 32 years as an economics journalist, a lot of people coming in use a lot of big words, fancy terms to try and kind of tampen down the basic questions, which are always the correct questions. Why did we bail out banks and not homeowners? What are we going to do to make sure taxpayers never have to pick up the cost of this kind of malfeasance on the part of Wall Street again? And we did not get those questions asked enough and answered properly. And so what happened then was what has been happening for the last half century, um, politicians of both stripes passed the buck to central bankers. They didn't want to take those tough guns and butter decisions to use a you know a, an LBJ era term and say, okay, we are going to bail out homeowners, and I'm sorry, banks, you know, we're going to get tougher on you. Nobody wanted to make those decisions. Um, and so central banks got the ball, and all central banks can do is deal with monetary policy. And what that means is they can keep rates low, they can throw a lot of money into the economy, which is what they did, and they can create an asset bubble. So that's why the price of stocks went up, the price of homes went up. And the idea is that's supposed to make people feel richer. And it does to a certain extent, but you, you have to remember that 85% of the stock wealth in this country is held by the top 12% of the population. Most of the home uh, money in this country, home equity, is held by wealthy people in about 12 cities. Um, that broadened a little bit after the pandemic. But the bottom line is that most people still get most of their money from a paycheck. And so when you have an economy that is run only on monetary policy, on easy money, then you get this kind of saccharine growth where you get an asset bubble, not anything different happening on Main Street. Now, you asked, how do we make sure to seize a crisis moment? I think this moment is going to be different. And I think, again, that the pandemic and the war in Ukraine were a bit like a scrim that was pulled back and everybody got to see the vulnerabilities in our supply chains. What happens when you have four companies controlling meatpacking? Uh, what happens when you get the majority of your masks from China because they're three cents and they're being made by tiny fingers, you know, possibly forced labor in Xinjiang? Um, and China decides in the middle of a pandemic, we want those masks. Everybody had to grapple with those things. And I think it's hard to unsee that. And already you can see the Biden administration starting to turn this Titanic of the economy. And it will take more than one administration to do it, but it will happen. These changes will happen. Okay, this is really helpful because I want to go back to the makers and takers part here. As I'm listening to you articulate this, I'm really understanding that the difference between now and then is that there's a tangibility yeah. to these sets of issues. Experience. So yeah. if you're a if you're a politician, let's say in 2011, after Dodd-Frank, after Republicans take back the House with the shellacking, you're not going to be graded on financial reform, 
you're not going to be graded on any of those different issues. But if you're talking about the current supply chain woes, if you're talking about Chipsack, semiconductor, yeah. energy risk via Taiwan and semiconductors. There's something tangible to that. So, can you just super simply, can you explain the financialization side of this, the yeah. capital side of this? Because this is the part of the story that honestly, like I do this for a living and I couldn't quite articulate <laughs> the yeah, 1970s yeah. story. So, like, let's yeah. focus on that part of it because that wasn't. If you're talking about the Reaganite Thatcher consensus, that was not part of the political project in terms of the front facing part of it. I think folks get the government size aspect. They get the taxation aspect. They are not going to be quite as articulate on on that part. So let me break that financialization story down into a few different parts, if if we can. Um, I would start again by by using this guns and butter uh, comparison. So if we go back to the Vietnam War, right, the last time we had a big bout um, following that of, of inflation, what's called the guns and butter debate was really about where do we want to put resources in our economy? Who matters? What, what matters? So you had a war going on. You had a lot of spending going into that. But you also had um, a civil rights movement had happened. There was a concern about the quality of cities. There was a push for many different stakeholder groups for social programs and, you know, um, a bolstering of America's social safety net. And so there were there was money going there, too. And at some point when there's money going everywhere, it causes inflation and you have to try and make decisions, you know, hard decisions about what kind of a country do we want to be? Well, guess what? Politicians don't like making those decisions so much because it cuts out potential voter groups. And so at that point, you get an interesting um, shift in the financial markets. The dollar um, becomes much more flexible. So interest rates can move in ways that they couldn't before. And that allows these kind of wizard central bankers uh, up in the ivory tower to start doing more to manage the economy. And what they do is they keep rates low, which encourages debt, right? It encourages debt of all kinds, corporate debt, financial debt, personal debt. I am a liberal but I and a progressive, but I really, um, unlike many liberals and progressive, progressives, I am very anti-debt. I, I get worried about debt because whenever the debt call, gets called in, it hurts people without the most, you know, Do you mean at a personal level or at a national level. Debt? I think, I think both, I think both. And, um, and, uh, you know, you saw that in the financial crisis, you saw people, the, the, the most vulnerable that had taken and been sold predatory loans really being hit the hardest. You know, that's why you come out of the financial crisis and you see that um, I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right, but you see, you know, the average African-American family having something like, you know, 250 bucks liquid assets and and Latino families having like 400 and white families having like thousands. You know, I mean, it's just a ridiculous amount of of divide after that big um, bubble burst. But to go back to the 70s, so monetary policy starts kind of stretching out the business cycle and tax policy at the same time starts encouraging more and more debt. So a couple of interesting things that happened stock buybacks, which is when a company comes into the the market and buys back their own shares, which artificially bolsters share price, that becomes legal under the Reagan administration. So companies start doing this to kind of artificially jack up their share prices. 
Then Silicon Valley starts saying, oh, we want to pay our, our you know, high-tech employees in stock because that's going to make them come to our company. So the Clinton administration makes it tax preferable to get paid in stock. You start getting tons more companies paying in stock and buying back shares. The economy starts to move much more into this financial sphere of sort of magic money rather than all that money going into, say, building a new factory, retraining workers, um, you know, inventing the new, new thing. And you can actually see that in share buybacks going up, capital expenditure on productive things going down. Um, and what that does ultimately is it moves wealth into the C-suite. It moves wealth onto the coasts, um, at, into the tops of companies and away from, from labor and communities that have been hollowed out around the country. Something I'm curious about here is if we're going to tell this story of the neoliberal era, that story would start with tax revolts in California in the 1970s. Like these are these like precipitating political events that show, oh wow, like there's a real constituency in favor of tax cuts. This is Ronald Reagan's yeah. California. There's also the the energy crisis, inflation scares. Can you talk about the contradiction, it seems, between yeah. the idea that we're moving on in this moment from the neoliberal paradigm, yet if sure. we're actually looking at the precipitating economic and political events, they're yeah. actually quite similar. So why would this not just result in, let's say, Trump coming back and DeSantis mm -hmm. getting elected the first time and then passing mm -hmm. another big tax cut? Because as someone who yeah. like studies the right, I will tell you that that's more likely than not. And there's plenty of great folks on the right who, like American Compass, these different groups who would say, everything you're saying is really valid, but I still have a hard time not seeing these specific set of circumstances really serving the status quo. Um, uh, listen, 100%, and we are on a precipice here. Um, let me answer this in a few different ways. First of all, I'll pull way back and say that if you look at the long-term historical sweep, I think that every economic paradigm has its moment. I think you could argue, actually, in the 70s um, that maybe you did need some capital deregulation. Maybe you did need some tax cuts. Maybe you did need um, a little less scleroticism within the, the traditional labor movement. Um, you got that, but then the pendulum swung too far in such a way that it's now actually tampening down growth. The fact that we have too big of a financial sector and that nobody's gotten a wage hike aside from the, the recent ones, which PS haven't even remotely kept up with prices, um, especially in things like housing, healthcare, and education. Um, nobody's gotten a raise you know, in the last 20 years and working people haven't gotten one in 40 years. So this paradigm has outlived its usefulness. That always happens in history. If you go back to say the 18th centuries, mercantilism had a had a, a moment until it didn't, and then it gave way to laissez-faire, and then you got Keynesianism, and then you got neoliberalism. And now I believe we are moving into a post-neoliberal era. And interestingly, although I agree with you that there's a risk that you could get um, a radical right back in office, it's interesting that both the right and the left are at least in theory, talking about the same things, which is not tax cuts per se. You know, I mean, you look at Liz Truss in the UK, she talked about tax cuts on the rich. Her government is falling apart. Yeah. Could you explain um, the Liz? I mean, folks have probably seen that's a whole thing, but can you give a quick summary? Of oh, yeah. Because, yeah, because, 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 quick thing, I think to your point, and this is why the story is interesting here, the point isn't that the neoliberal approach 
yeah. is finished. It's just that there were plenty of FDR LBJ Democrats who tried advancing their political projects using that same 1930s to 1940s rhetoric once it no longer served the political, not even to say economic purposes, like in the mid 70s. So, yeah, I explained Liz Truss. Yeah. So I see Liz Truss in some ways. It's, it's sort of perfect that she's in the UK because, you know, we were talking about the Reagan Thatcher revolution. That was an Anglo-American revolution in which taxes were cut. Capitals were unleashed. Capital was unleashed. Unions were squashed. Fast forward. Um, you've got Liz Truss trying to, ch- I guess, kind of channel Margaret Thatcher and say, hey, here's a great growth prescription. Let's cut taxes on the wealthy, even as we're going to increase government spending by giving everyone energy subsidies. That's going to be awesome for budgets and for people. And the markets and pretty much everybody on either side of the aisle were kind of like, no, that's not going to work. The, the the UK pound collapses. I mean, they're, they're really having an almost a full-blown financial crisis at this point in the UK. It's possible Liz Truss is going to you know, lose her own government. So that's almost like the apex where neoliberalism starts to fall apart. Now, in the US, the way I would look at it is Trump, in some ways, as odious as he was, he was like a confidence man, you know, to look at talk about the Melville um, novel, which Maggie Haberman, uh, you know, titled her recent book on Trump confidence, man. It's perfect because con man's what they do is they take a single truth and embed it in a welter of lies. And that's how they sell it. And the single truth that Trump embedded was NAFTA wasn't great for the average American worker. And I remember him in um, that first debate with Hillary Clinton. I watched it with a bunch of um, progressive friends on the upper on the very blue upper west side of manhattan and everybody was like oh she's killing him she's killing him and and i heard him talk nafta and say you your people your husband you supported that and i thought she had nothing to say she couldn't really counter it and i thought shoot he's won and I also remember sitting at a dinner uh, earlier when the primaries were still going on. I'm from Indi- rural Indiana and um, was a bunch of I was sitting with a bunch of big Republican conventional Republican donors, and they were just convinced that it was going to be a usual Republican that was elected um, you know, but to be to be the candidate. And I was watching the Indiana primary and I thought Trump's going to win this. And they said, no way. He's you know, he's a joke. He's an outsider. And I, and I said to them. What do you have in conventional Republican trickle-down economics? What do you have to offer people? You're not offering them anything that resonates in my hometown in Frankfort, Indiana, which ended up going 76% Trump. Now, Trump was a con man, right? All his policies in some ways were neoliberal with the exception of trade strategy, which frankly had nothing to do with him. That was all Bob Lighthizer. And Lighthizer... um, his policy Lighthizer for folks? Lighthizer is the was the um, Bob Lighthizer was the U.S. trade rep under under Trump who who put tariffs on China. Um, his policies were seen as nationalistic, but in fact, there's not that much air between what he did and his sort of view on great power competition between the U.S. and China and what the Biden administration and the new U.S. trade rep Catherine Tyre doing, which is to say, you know what? We can't be constantly in trade deficit. We need to think about um, economic development here at home because global markets have gotten so far disconnected from national politics that the electorship on both sides has lost trust. And that's why you get Trump 
on one side, but in some ways, Bernie Sanders on the other side, because people on both ends of the spectrum are saying, we don't trust mid, uh, you know, middle of the road conventional politicians with their neoliberal strategies to look after us. So that's what's happening here. You know, something I wonder, let's talk about the Sanders side. Because yeah. it's this end of the debate that's interesting because when I was referencing earlier, 19, you know, 76, 77, 78, the, the tax revolts as the um, presaging factors behind the then the transition, you could say the 2016 election is also something yeah. that presages that change. But it seems to me that the the socialism debate, the democratic socialism debate is kind of a a weird um, offshoot of what we're talking about here in the sense yes. that to me, it feels like it's a, it's basically a political dead end when it comes to trying to give a broader narrative about this moment. That's just what I've kind of picked up when I've spoken to folks. And this mm. is kind of funny, like whenever you, whenever you talk to progressives about this post-neoliberal moment, they get very skittish when you talk about democratic socialism. And, yeah. I've, and in my sense of that is they recognize that there is some limiting factor there that probably prevents it from moving beyond that 33% of the vote that Bernie got. What would be your reflection on that like paradigm alternative? That's interesting. I would actually disagree with that. And in fact, I would point to somebody like Ro Khanna. Look mm -hmm. at some of the, the statements and the speeches he's been making recently that are bringing together issues of race and class, which to me is exactly where the action is for Democrats, um, because progressives have done a really good uh, job, I think, of saying, look, we have massive racism still in this country. We need to deal with issues of identity. We need to make sure that we have social justice and equity. But on the other hand, there are these issues of class equality that actually go across the spectrum, um, not only amongst minorities, but amongst working class whites. And I think that now and that's what where Bernie was at a little bit. I think the sense of, you know what, capitalism and markets are not working well. Which, you know, is is actually it's funny. it's funny that Bernie, to me, as somebody that covered Europe for 10 years, that he's seen so radical because Bernie is about as radical as like a middle of the road German Christian Democrat. You know, it's like he all he's saying is, you know what, we should maybe in the richest country in the world have some decent like universal health care and, and, you know, not have so many poor people on the streets, you know, with nothing. It's we need a little bit of a social safety net. That's all he's saying. He's not trying to, you know, start a commune somewhere. Um, I think that at this moment, those issues of race and class are starting to come together finally. And I think that that is going to help the Democrats ultimately uh, take not only cities, but take some of the swing states in areas where that those Rust Belt factory towns, you know, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, parts of the Carolinas. I was actually down, interestingly, in the Carolinas talking to some people recently in the textile supply chain. And textiles were very hollowed out by China's entry into the WTO. And uh, one of the folks at this country, uh, this company said to me, you know, sometimes we vote Democrat, sometimes we vote Republican, but we always vote on trade. And what he meant by that is I need to know that the people I'm electing are going to look after jobs here, that they're not going to sell me into some 100 year bargain where we're moving towards a country in which everyone can be a software developer or financier and Chinese wages are going to rise and Chinese are going to come into the Washington consensus system seamlessly. Ha, 
You know, that's a we've seen that that's not happening. And and I think that that kind of that willful blindness is going away. I mean, people understand that um, there was a bargain that was made, a neoliberal bargain by both sides. And and I am forever sad that the Clintons were a part of that because I, I think it set the Democrats back a long time. Um, but but they I, I think both sides of the aisle realize that you can no longer sell trickle down and win. Now, Trump didn't sell trickle down. He, he sold a kind of a con job made in America. We're going to bring jobs back. He didn't do anything to bring jobs back. Um, whatever he did was already in train. I think the trick now is to move, which the Biden administration is trying to do, to a real industrial strategy that is not nationalistic, not protectionistic, but simply takes care of people at home and takes care of competitiveness at home so that the U.S. can actually compete in the 21st century. Something I wonder, as I'm thinking about this, to what degree is this deglobalized future you're discussing going to be better Mm. than the one we have now? Because Mm. I'll put on my most, you know, Columbia Business School (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, we had, we had Glenn, I had Glenn Hubbard on at the start oh, of the man. year. Oh man, okay, yeah. And and what Glenn Hubbard would say, yeah, is, and you say you you say it yourself, Rana. Um, this year, this fifty year period of neoliberal globalization created more wealth than at any point in human history. And yes, we could maybe debate around the lines of like, was this quite the right tax cut to take at this right exact moment? And yes, there are issues of distribution. And yes, the Fed could have done things a little differently. But at a core level, you, once again, this is me playing devil's advocate, sure, are basically suggesting that people can get rid of those bad parts, get over those awkward 1994 NAFTA decisions, but still take and retain all this prosperity that the globalization system created. No, so what I'm basically me, asking is like, what's the trade? What's the, it, I, well, yeah. I, I don't think you're actually framing my comments correctly. Um, I, yes, of course, statistically more global wealth created than ever before in the last 50 years and more global wealth inequality, okay. which is why you have broke. And this is statistical. It's in my book. It's on the FT. It's everywhere. You can look at the numbers. Um, it's why you have a broken political system, not just in the U.S., but in Europe, in many parts of the world. Nationalism, populism, far right, far left, it's all growing because people feel that the global economy has become unmoored from national political concerns and local and regional concerns. And that is a legitimate truth. And that is as disruptive a phenomenon as they come. I mean, we are on the border of fascism. We're on the border of or potentially socialism in some places, you know, extremes. What we need to do is to make the system work the way it was supposed to work. If you go back to way back, Adam Smith, father of modern capitalism, and Glenn will know this well, um, he said you needed three things for markets to function properly. One was uh, an equal playing field. People can understand what the transaction is. The second thing was equal access to data and information about the transaction. And third was a shared moral framework. Now, 
When I look at the global trading system today, where you've got any number of liberal democracies um, doing business with autocracies, petro dictatorships, um, you know, et cetera, and I look at my own daily transactions with Amazon, none of those things <laughs> are, are in place. There is not equal access to information. There is not a shared moral framework. These markets are not working properly. And so, yes, if we don't want to end up in a very bad place in five or 10 years, I think we've got to fix them. You know, something I'm wondering as you're articulating this here is to what degree do you think, let's say, emerging politicians have glommed onto this narrative in this debate? Because I think um, Brian Kettering at Hewitt, who, full disclosure, funds um, this podcast with with a grant, he, he did a review of your book and a couple other books. And he basically laid out that we should think of, and I'm not saying this quite exactly, so folks should check the show notes for the proper articulation, mm -hmm. that you have ideas, you have paradigms, and then you eventually have like politics that introduces yes, these into I, action. I agree with that. Yeah. So, where do you think we are? Because Biden's doing this, but like, let's be real for a second. Like Biden, Biden's not giving his, this is the new deal. This is the square deal. This is the fair deal. And, and frankly, I don't think that would even work if he did it. That's kind of importing 1930s style political rhetoric and projects. Like Obama tried to do the new foundation and no one's going to get the reference um, I just made. Like the new foundation was his attempt to articulate the post-financial crisis Um mainstream center-left economic project. So I'm not critiquing Biden for not giving mm -hmm. his big West Wing speech. But like considering that then, like how do you think about the political process when it comes to up-and-coming politicians adopting this paradigm and then articulating in their own context? So, you know, I cover a lot of this in my book, actually. And I think we're much farther along than you might think. It's true that we haven't had that kind of fireside chat, New Deal, you know, firecrackers going off kind of speech. That's partially a stylistic thing. Um, I think Biden gave a very, very powerful speech in July of 2021, where he essentially said the Chicago school is over. Trickle down is over. Um, we are moving into a world in which prices are not the only metric of, uh, of concern to, the, in, to us uh, policymakers. Um, we are moving into a world in which it's about work, not wealth, which is very much an allusion to financialization. And we're not going to just jack up asset prices. We're going to try and create some good jobs here, folks. Um, he talked about uh, how power mattered, not just prices, but power. Who has power? Big companies have power. That's why you're seeing Lena Khan at, uh, at the FTC and Jonathan Kanner at the DOJ really taking a new approach to antitrust policy. You're seeing Tim Wu in the White House doing the same thing. So I think, I mean, and also Biden's got a statue. It's got a bust of Cesar Chavez in his office. I mean, you know, like it's tough, it's tough to get a bigger labor, uh, you know, uh, statement than that. But I also think he's a head down kind of guy. And he's like Obama dealing with a big storm of things coming at him right now. And he's doing it well. He's not getting you know out and talking all the time. Some people say he should talk more. I'm actually really happy in some ways as a journalist, particularly in the beginning of this administration, I used to call up all the usual suspects and they just didn't have time. And I thought, good. They've got their heads down. They're doing their jobs. They're not trying to become stars. They're in the White House working hard every day to get stuff done. 
Now, at some point, and this is the moment, we do need to start articulating these things politically. I like work not wealth. I think it's I think it's strong. As a sl- I, that's a slogan. As a slogan, it's a slogan he's used many times. Um, I I think we do need to come up with some kind of um, branding for the new localization or deglobalization sounds sort of negative, you know. Or I mean, it's, literally, and it's, also, <laughs> it's 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 kind it's, of. It's, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's like complicated, too, you know, and, but but the sense of localism, localism is is important. And localism is in some ways the basis of democracy. You know, Michael Sandel, the um, philosopher from Harvard, actually argued that in one of his books that you need strong local communities in order to flourish at a national level, economically or politically and the same at the international level. So. Yeah, I think that's where we are. I'm I'm hopeful there's def- definitely a new generation of economists that are thinking this way. Um, Hewlett has been really um, seminal in funding some of those. Danny Roderick, Gordon Hansen, Heather Boucher, um, uh, you know, Joe Stiglitz is sort of the godfather in many ways of some of this stuff. Um, we're getting there, but, you know, it takes time. In this last section, I want to go back to, in many ways, your critique of Democrats in the 1990s, because what makes a paradigm successful is that it it shapes the world around you. And the triumph of neoliberalism wasn't Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan winning during their presidency and her prime ministership. It was Bill Clinton adopting it as his framework. And the key thing is, let's put aside the economic picture. It was a successful political move. He was the first Democrat to come into office after after you know um, Reagan um, and uh, obviously um, H.W. Bush, it was a successful political move, and this was always what was so awkward for I think critiques of the political moves he made in the '90s, which was you could show me the tables, you can make the wait a second three or four generations point, but unlike his competition, he was winning elections. So it seems yes. to me then, if if we are arguing that there is this once in a lifetime opportunity where this could actually happen, the test will be. Does the next Republican administration in 2025 or 2029 adopt it? So to your point earlier, obviously with trade in its weird way, we actually have an example because you have the Biden administration largely operating within at least the rhetor, not the rhetorical bounds, obviously, but within the wonky technocratic bounds of what the Trump's folk are, folks are doing. There is consensus there. What are some other areas of this Biden agenda you just talked about where you could see yeah, a through line, especially in these less like, let's say what's these in this weird situation where the less wonky it is, the less you're going to get into office. And President DeSantis says, "I need to overturn that on day one." Right? Yeah, like there's yeah. no equivalent of let's say the um, Paris Climate Accord or the Iran nuclear deal. No, I mean I almost see again that the right and the left are fighting for the same post neoliberal ground. You know, and and um. Just look at someone. Let's put aside DeSantis for a minute, but look, look at someone like uh, Rubio, you know, mm-hmm. and and his push for what is essentially industrial policy. You know, there's not a lot of air between what he would say and what Elizabeth Warren would say on some of these topics. Um, also, you look at some of the speeches that, again, Bob Lighthizer is giving. He he's trying to put a sort of a conservative values spin on the post neoliberal world by saying. Neoliberalism is essentially about driving down prices. It's about price is the only thing that matters. Consumer prices, share prices. That's about consumerism. And conservatives 
are about values. They're not about mercantilism and consumerism. So he's kind of trying to spin it that way. And I expect that certain folks will start to pick up that message as well. Um, you know, oh, it, it'll be sort of the heartland Republicans saying, oh, look at those 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 people on the coast. All they they're they're so um, um, gosh, what's the Ross Dutho? It's like they're they're entitled. And uh, what was the Ross Dutho book that came out about decadent decadent? Yeah, yeah. Decadence, you know, it'll be it'll be phrased in that way. Um, so the turn has happened. I don't hear anybody getting up and saying, you know what, we need to go back to the mid 1990s, cut some more trade deals and, and cut taxes on the rich. I just don't see that happening. Now, that's not to say that just like Trump, they won't talk one game and then the Republicans get in and do something else. But it's not a political selling point. You've written a lot about the geopolitical side of these interactions. And I'm curious to what degree are you worried that deglobalization and the tensions and the lack of bonds it will reveal are going to further chances of conflict, like say with let's say with like China. I'm worried. I'm worried. But you know, honestly, I was always worried. I, I remember going back um it was around the time of the Ed, Edward Snowden leaks. I was in China and I was meeting actually with um, a bunch of companies. I met with a, a, a Danish wind company and I, they were the number one wind company in China at the moment. And I said, so how are things going? And they're like, it's pretty good. You know, I think we're going to be number four in five years. I'm like, wait, number four, why is that good? And they're like, well, that's what Beijing has told us. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I was talking to a PLA general about that and a woman actually. And she said, um, well, of course, in China, there's no line between the state and, and the private sector. And I just thought, why is the West pretending that these two systems are going to seamlessly mesh? It is not going to happen. China is going to do what the U.S. did, you know, back in the day, take as much technology from Britain as quickly as possible and then build up their own, their own economy and system. That's what countries do. It's so I mean, it, it works. It's working for China. I'm not into, you know, IP theft, but this is this is mercantilism. This is how it operates. But why are we pretending that it's going to be different? Well, why we are pretending is that multinational companies wanted the next quarter of growth in China and they just didn't care what the consequences were. And my stand, my, my thought, um, and this was articulated very well by a friend and, and colleague of mine, Barry Lin, also a Hewlett-funded organization, Open Markets, in his end of the line book about supply chain fragility, which came out the same year as the world is flat. And you know, everybody should have read the end of the line. Um, he said, look, we're, we're kidding each other that these systems are going to just seamlessly operate globally. There's eventually going to be a break. We should simply prepare for that, not by being antagonistic or protectionistic, but by bolstering our own economy and our own um, human capital. I hate to use that McKinsey-esque word, but you know, bolster education, bolster the industrial base, don't incentivize debt, incentivize investment. You know, these are the things we need to do and we're doing them finally, but uh, you know, arguably too late. Last three questions. So number one, to continue the topic, the, continuing the, the Thomas Friedman dunking, I think what he successfully did just as a, as a, as a writer and, and a thinker, and I mean this genuinely, is he came up with these really helpful phrases. Yes. Just to ground your thinking. The world is flat. It's, it's simple, but there's actually something deeper. Yeah within it. What would you 
off the top of your head or maybe something you've encountered, like what are useful frames that someone should look at the deglobalization era through? Well, first of all, the world is not flat. Okay. I guess I set you up for that one. That's, but that's the helpful. low-hanging fruit. But no, um, cheap is not cheap. Okay. Cheap is not cheap when you think about the cost to people. You know, think about the um the debate over Xinjiang cotton right now. You know, Xinjiang is a province in the far west of China where most cotton production is done. And it's also where a lot of Uyghurs are in concentration camps doing some of that production. Um, that's why your mask costs three cents and not 30 cents the way an American mask does, which, by the way, interestingly, because there is still parts of the supply chain in the U.S., private companies, family owned middle market companies that were able to work together during the pandemic, they were they drove down the price of a U.S. mask from 30 cents to 10 cents. Now, let's look at what is between 10 cents and three cents. Three cents is dumping for starters because raw materials cost about five to six cents. And then you've got slave labor, and then you've got the cost of the transport of that low margin item, which costs energy, which emits carbon. Maybe you want to make that thing closer to home, wherever you are, you know? And P.S., we haven't even talked about some of the technological changes that are making this happen. Additive manufacturing, 3D printing. I mean, these things are, they're, they're on fire right now. We are poised for the kind of revolution in the industrial space that will make it possible for us to make cars, homes, 3D printed houses are already going up all over the country on site locally. Um, it's going to be like the revolution that happened when we all got an iPhone and then the app economy started. So there are tailwinds to this process. It's going to be better for everybody. It will mean less energy usage, more carbon or sorry, um, fewer carbon emissions and um, and and more redundancy of production globally. Second, I'm curious how you think as someone who's liberal to progressive, I think if there was one thing that I think any person left of center could really, and plenty of people in the center who could identify with the globalization story was, it was hopeful yeah. about humanity, right? It's, yeah. it's you know, your, your New York Times guest op-ed that came out today about refers to globalism. Um, and I'm sure there are going to be plenty of New York Times readers who are going to blanch that. They're like, wait, that's very like Steve Bannon-y. That's very like zero sum. How do you suggest to people who at least in good faith looked towards the hopeful part of the world being flat? Like, what do you say to them when we have to shift our mentality from that? Well, when I think of globalism, I don't think of something hopeful. I think globalization is hopeful in the sense that, you know, the coming together of the planet to solve big problems is a hopeful thing. But globalism, I associate with a small group of people who's, you know, I cover and frankly, I'm part of um, uh, that have multiple passports that get to kind of float above the problems of the nation state, have high enough skills and fancy enough degrees that we don't have to worry about any of this stuff. And we all kind of get along and hang out in the same capitals around the world. And life is good for us. You know, we're what people, um, uh, what like David Goodhart, for example, the, um, uh, the somewheres writer, and anywheres, somewheres and anywheres, uh, you know, I'm an anywhere, but uh, most people are somewheres place matters to them. And so when we recraft globalization, I would like to see it be a much more heterodox, much less one size fits all, do exactly what the IMF and the World Bank and the WTO deem, deem right. 
and much more localized. You know, there are a lot of people, liberals like Joe Stiglitz, for example, and people in emerging markets that have been complaining for decades, wait a minute, the global rules don't suit us. We want to do things differently. It's about bringing more voices in, not fewer voices. And last question, I would love to, I'm not asking for a prediction because those are those are terrible on 15 levels, but it seems like we're going to have a tough transitory decade ahead of ourselves. Yes. What would you articulate as the hopeful end point? You kind of got out of this when you're talking about additive manufacturing, but should we make these changes? Should we embrace this paradigm? The, the, the hopeful vision at the end of the, you know, Reagan presidency was like the end of history 1990s. Mm -hmm. In terms of like what it felt like, like what could a hopeful deglobalized 2030s look like? You know, I think a lot about Jane Jacobs and mm -hmm. um, the 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 city sort of city thinker, planner, um, activist um, who railed against Robert Moses. And she was all about the beauty of local um, and the connectivity that comes from community. And. I think the last half century has been a lot of top-down development. And what we need is a little more bottom-up development and a little more focus on the beauty of localization, the beauty of place, all places. Um, that makes me hopeful. Rana, this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining me on The Realignment. Thank you so much for having me. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like the sort of mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.